Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back, everyone, to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I am so thrilled to have my next guest with me. Isolde Brillmeyer is here with us today, and after a quick word from our sponsors, we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. As I said before the ad started, I am so excited to be welcoming my next guest. Now, in the art world in New York City, there are names and then there are names. And Isolde Brillmeyer is one that you will hear anywhere you go. She has a storied career working everywhere from the Guggenheim to the Bronx Museum of Art and the SCAD Museum of Art as well. She's contributed to programs around the world with companies like The Peninsula, Valentino, Gucci, New York Magazine. And she's now the deputy director of the new museum, as well as the guest curator at the International Center of Photography in New York City. So a small list of things. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Lydia. It's such a joy, such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so honored that you're on this podcast right now. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the art world because this is a world that I've been in my entire career and you have had such an incredible journey working in so many different capacities. But I know it all starts at the very beginning. So where did you come from? Where did your story begin? Yeah, so I have a storied story. I guess maybe <laughs> we all do. I am originally from Seattle. I'm a child of immigrants. My mother is Austrian. My father's Ugandan. Grew up for the most part in Seattle. And I think one of the most important aspects of my upbringing was my foray into the dance world. Mm -hmm. I'm a former dancer, a former ballerina. I probably started dancing around the age of seven, all the way up through my mid to late 20s. And I say that because that's really my sort of springboard into the creative realm and really informed how I see myself, how I move through the world. And I know we're going to kind of dig into this a little bit, Lydia, but definitely a huge part of my confidence journey. Where did the love of dance begin? Was that something that your mother or father did? Or was it something that you saw and became entranced with? Exactly. Yeah, I think like many children, my parents took me to see the Nutcracker. You know, uh -huh. you have that moment where you're taken to a museum or you go to see a play. And for me, it was the Nutcracker. Pacific Northwest Ballet put on a wonderful production in Seattle. And I just saw the sparkle and the presentation and I heard the applause and I loved the music and the joy of the dancers sort of whirling and twirling across the stage. And I knew at that moment, I was like, I have to try this. And so my parents put me in Pacific Northwest Ballet School. I had also some training on the side at an African dance studio called Iwajo. And I think the rest was history. I really stuck with it. I kind of started maybe as a hobby. And I would say by the time I was about 12, I kind of felt this was my calling. That's amazing. My mother was a huge ballet lover and so had me in ballet at a very early age. So I understand the discipline that it takes. I used to do it four days a week. I'm also a giant. I'm 5'11". And so this was never the career trajectory for me and I was not talented at all. But I do remember just hours and hours spent in the studio and it takes such discipline. But it also takes a lot of confidence because you start with the rehearsal 
and then exactly. you perform in front of the troupe or the crowd, the people who are watching. What was that yeah. like for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that because for me, when I look back on my time as a dancer, I think there were incredibly joyful moments, but it was also a little bit of a mixed bag knowing what I know now. So the discipline piece is huge, Lydia, as you point out, and that is so deeply embedded in me and I think is a part, I'm sure we'll sort of talk more about how things unfolded, but really that's been a huge part of what has enabled me to move along, move forward, and I'm very, very thankful for that. I think ballet is an interesting discipline because I think it's one of those art forms where you really have to dig deep and kind of discover a strong kind of belief in yourself and a strong sense of resilience. Mm -hmm. And I always sort of point out, it's one thing, even in the studio, when you're practicing to do a triple pirouette. Mm -hmm. And this was such a, you know, we all aspired as 12 and 13 year olds. We had just gone on point wearing toe shoes to do triple pirouettes. And it's one thing to be in a studio by yourself practicing and to do a triple pirouette, but there was a sense that it actually really didn't count until others saw it. Oh, interesting. And that, in a way, right, Lydia, it encapsulates everything. You know, how does that triple pirouette really carry value and boost your sense of self and your confidence when no one else saw it? Right. And the reason I bring that up is because the other side of the dance world was very much about external validation. Mm -hmm. And I really believe when you hang your hat on anything outside of yourself, it always gets very precarious in life. Absolutely. Always gets precarious. You can hang it on a new car. You can hang it on the three letters that come after your name. You can hang it on a great pair of shoes or a fancy bag, but those things come and go. Mm -hmm. And if you really rely on those for your sense of self and self-validation, things come and go. Right, right. Daily. Exactly. I think that for me, that was a huge piece. And it definitely over time, I think, took a toll Mm -hmm. where when I left the dance world, I really had to figure out how to stand on my own two feet and self-validate constantly. And that took years in a way of sort of shedding that I'm only as fabulous as others see me, right? And as others, you know, extend the applause. And it's such a good lesson for life. You know, I think there are so many things that we learn early on that we don't really realize until we can look back with, you know, with time, with maturity and all of those things. But I think more than anything, what you realize, and you've said it so well, is that confidence is always within. And the minute you're looking anywhere else, you're never going to find what you can only find within yourself, but it takes a lot to realize that as well. Exactly. And I think, you know, when you're 12 and 13, I mean, you're still forming as a human being. I mean, hopefully we're forming all of our lives, but definitely at that age, right? There's so much that you have to learn and you don't have enough time to kind of put things in context. And, you know, that comes with experience, but all the wonderful things of discipline and poise and hard work and falling down literally and figuratively and then getting back up or getting injured and being patient with yourself. All of those things were so positive and I really feel were instilled in me and I hold them dear today. But it's so interesting, you know, when you reach out and said, hey, you know, you want to come and let's talk about your confidence journey. I thought, boy, that has been a journey. Yeah, That has really been a journey. So take us to the next step of your journey. Was this something you continued to do through high school and college or did it end in high school? Where did the dance journey end and then the visual arts journey begin? 
Yeah, so I mean, I was very fortunate. You know, my parents were big fans of arts and culture. And so they were always taking us to museums. Seattle has an incredible theater culture. And so, you know, even in our public school system, we got to go and see like mini clips of Shakespeare, like 30 minute, you know, clips of Hamlet and Taming of the Shrew. And the arts had always been a part of my life. I danced, I went to high school in Germany for about a year and a half, in part because I got into the Hamburg State Opera Ballet School there. And that was when I was, I think, 16. I came back to Seattle to finish up my senior year in high school. And at the time, I was still dancing and very committed. But I think travel, and of course, I mean, that's a whole other kind of conversation, but it really makes your world bigger. So I think when I came back from Germany, I sort of realized like, wow, there's a whole world out there and there's so much one can do. But I still felt very passionate about dance. I cut a deal with my parents and the deal was you could continue dancing as long as you went to school. Mm -hmm. So I applied everywhere, but my heart was set on New York City. And I got into Columbia. Because of dance. Of course. Yeah, Yeah, because I thought, well, I can go to college. And then there are studios, Alvin Ailey, Steps, Broadway Dance Theater. There are studios all over the the city. So when I'm not in school, I can go to the studio and dance. And of course, Barnard across the street had a wonderful dance program. So I danced kind of through college and a little bit after, but I think it was really the travel and then coming to New York where my world became so much bigger. And I really was faced with the question of, did I want to only do the dance with my life or did I want to explore many of the other things that I found intriguing and exciting. And ultimately, I went in that direction. So I thought for a while I wanted to go into broadcast journalism. Uh And I did a stint because I speak different languages and I'd been traveling from a young age to visit family overseas. I thought, oh, maybe I could be the next Christiane Ampour. I'm a huge, huge fan of hers. Yes, me too. I went and did a stint at ABC and it was soul crushing. (laughs) I mean, at the time, at the time it was, you know, it was pretty much all men. Yeah very, very few people of color. And, you know, I remember having to wear these button up shirts and pantyhose that didn't match my skin tone. I was like, this is awful. Like, (laughs) I really want to spend the rest of my life in this environment. And so I ended up leaving and moving into, you know, a different job. But on the side, you know, I always had this phrase in my head from my mother who always said, you know, life happens, but you have to work to keep it interesting. So true. And I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to work, but what am I going to do outside of work? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are all these things. I'm in New York City. So I started to volunteer at museums and specifically the Museum for African Art, which was then located down in Soho in New York City, kind of right next to where the Prada store is on Broadway and Prince. And I had an incredible boss and I was leading foreign language tours. And one day she came up to me and she said, you know, Azolda, there's a really great job open at the Guggenheim. You should go and apply for it. So I applied and they, within like two days, hired me. And it was a three-year contract to work on a massive show on contemporary African photography and a big African art exhibition that they took from the Royal Academy in London. And really, the rest was history. I mean, I was just... Hooked. Sold. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, I worked with the late Oquian Wazor, who was a mentor of mine and was curating the photo show and... It was just magical to kind of be around artists and creative thinkers and think about not only art, but representation and images. And from there, I ended up going back to Columbia. What year was this? How old are you at this point? I was probably about 27, 27. maybe. So it was in the late 90s. 
It's amazing because the museum and auction and art world has changed so much. I mean, I started in so 99 much. at Christie's. That was when my, yes. my first year. And people have always said to me, oh, contemporary art is, you know, it's such a thing. It's the biggest part of the art world. And I remember my first year there, there was a gentleman who was running the contemporary department. And my job that year, I was in a special events, was to take a cab down to Tribeca, which I'd never been to before. I took a cab down to Tribeca, this sort of foreign part of New York, which in 1999 was not what it is today by any stretch exactly. of the imagination. And I walked up to the fifth story in a walk up to this massive loft with all of these costumes. And my job was to pick up a pink panther costume for the head of the department to wear at a party at Christie's. The sale made $7 million because we were selling the Jeff <laughs> oh Koons Pink Panther. Oh, you're kidding. And I will never forget it. And I remember there was all of this discourse at work around even the type of events because people were coming in jeans and it was very casual. And at that point at Christie's, the Impressionist and Modern Evening Sale was black tie. And so the whole of art course. world was different. It was just a very different, very old world feel. Everything yes. felt very glamorous and elegant. And then there was the contemporary department and the head was walking around in a Pink Panther costume. And so there was an <laughs> article hilarious. written in the New York Times about the contemporary world and how it was such a bunch of renegades. And, you know, you could never yes. turn anyone away for wearing blue jeans. I mean, these were real themes. So I think yes, about yeah. those early years for you, even at the Guggenheim doing such incredible work, it must have been mind-blowing in many ways to be at the front of all of this because it wasn't yeah. as if contemporary was an established market in the same way that it is today. Exactly. I mean, it sounds like you and I were sort of stepping into this space around the same time and it was very, very different. And yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think there was a sense of renegade. It felt much more sort of closed and exclusive, I think, than it is now. Yeah. And I actually find what we're sort of experiencing now much more refreshing. Yes. You know, it was definitely a, a bit intimidating. There were not as many women, yeah. definitely not as many people of color. And yeah, it had a little bit of a club feeling, yeah. you know, kind of like an old boys club. But it was still really fulfilling. And I don't know if you felt this way, Lydia, I would sort of come home from my work at the Guggenheim and I would definitely feel nourished, yes. you know, just by just even a handful of people that I would spend time with kind of during the day and work and think and talk and debate. Yeah. I found it really exciting. I've always found that around the art world when I say to people, one of the greatest parts about having worked in the auction world for so long was the number of times that I'd been seated next to someone casually, either waiting for an in-person meeting or just walking through the hall and the person all of a sudden starts diving into Chinese export porcelain. And 45 yes. minutes later, I'm staring at this person like, how do you know any of this? And that's the beauty of the art world. There's so much depth and there's so much interest in life, in travel, in the world around you that I've always found, as you said, sort of nourishes exactly. the soul. And it's been, it's always just amazing to walk into a place with art that you haven't seen before, art that you've seen in history books and then get to see in person. Exactly. That's a really magical yep. part. Yep, exactly. And so while you were at the Guggenheim, because there is so much at the beginning when I was reading through everything that you've done, I don't know if you've ever heard of the improv game, And Then, my kids love to mm -hmm. play it. So that's mm -hmm. how I feel with your career. <laughs> it's sort of like, <laughs> she does this, and then she also does this. So you were working at the Guggenheim at this part. Is this when partnerships became a part of your career as well? Or when did that whole evolution begin? You know, I think it kind of began right towards the end of grad school. So I was wrapping up my PhD. And in grad school, I sort of realized, you know what, I'm getting a PhD in art history and critical theory, but I don't 
only want to be an art historian. Mm -hmm. Like I just found it kind of like, because my thing was all of these artists, contemporary artists, primarily living artists, right, are making this work and they're putting it out in the world so that it can be engaged and, you know, viewed by people, like diverse people. And so I was really interested in how do we bring this work and the ideas that these artists are thinking about to life for many, many people. And the academy, right, the university setting felt too closed for me. Yeah. And so I started curating and kind of working with artists who were then not very well known. We all sort of came up in the art world together. So Mikaline Thomas and Wageshi Mutu and Kehinde Wiley, Shanique Smith, all of these artists who really people hadn't heard of. And it's sort of amazing to see where they've all landed today. And then different opportunities came up. This was people kind of in different sectors would sort of say, hey, you know, you've been doing this with artists. I remember one of the first programs I did was with Krug Champagne Mm -hmm. and they were interested in obviously selling their product, but they were interested in some kind of a program that connected to the arts. And for me, it always had to be very substantive. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just sort of put the product down. And so I thought, well, you know, why not do community building and gatherings, you know, in a series of dinners in artist studios? And, you know, we can host a really kind of eclectic, interesting group of people. And they agreed. So I know I remember Micheline Thomas hosted a dinner, Nicole Cherubini hosted a dinner, and it was just these really nice champagne dinners where the artists would kind of walk us through their studio and their work. And then we would just gather around the table and drink champagne and talk about whatever was sort of on our mind or what we had thought of the work. So that was one of the first programs I did. And then from there, things just sort of started to come. And I think the other piece that was really important to me was collaboration. So I don't believe that any of us go it alone. I do believe in the cliche, it takes a village. And so bringing other people and particularly women into the fold to work on different partnerships and projects were really, really important to me. Also, it's just more fun. It's more fun to do things with people rather than go the solo route. Right. You learn more, you can creative problem solve, you know, in different ways when you have a sounding board and partner. So, you know, I was curating. I think at the time I was also teaching at Vassar. So that was sort of as a young curator, kind of my bread and butter and, you know, academic life. It may not pay a ton, but it does give you a lot of flexibility, which was great. And yeah, the partnership piece was a lot of fun. And it was also thinking about how we offer up different point of entry into artwork for people outside of the art world. Right, because you said that before too. It is a very closed world and a lot of the partnerships and the ways that you can bring art into people's homes, I think in many ways is introducing them to the artist. You know, you'll hear a lot of the feedback often of people especially as you walk into a museum, they're like, I'm looking at something. I don't know what I'm looking at. And there's such a story behind it. There's so much history behind it. And that's what I've always loved about curation. And I would love for you to share a little bit more about what curators do, because again, outside of the art world, I don't know that anyone understands what your job is, what it entails. So take us through sort of a nine to five day in your job. 
Sure. So currently, I'm the deputy director at the new museum, and I'm actually not curating in this capacity. It's more leadership and management, which I'm really enjoying. But I do have a guest post at ICP at the International Center of Photography here in New York City, and I've curated for decades. I think the way I describe curating, first, I sort of say, listen, I work with contemporary artists. Mm -hmm. So generally, it's living artists. You know, and I have worked with a broad range, Carrie Mae Weems, Uta Barth, you know, uh, Fred Wilson, you name it. But my real kind of passion is working with artists of color and women artists. Mm -hmm. I'm very keen on using my platform to support artists that have kind of historically been excluded. But living artists is really the excitement for me, right? Because you're creating exhibitions, you're making, or I say for people that don't understand art world speak, you're basically setting up shows for artists for their work. And to work with living artists, you know, as you're partnering and kind of thinking about each piece and where it should go and how, you know, a visitor might encounter it. I mean, it's just such an incredibly wonderful creative process to partake in. And, you know, nine to five as a curator, you're literally thinking of the nuts and bolts from A to Z of a show. You have an artist, you have to figure out what work along with artists you'd like to show, where the work is located. Sometimes you have to borrow the work from other institutions or private collectors, and that's a long process. And then once you have the work, you have to really lay it out in a floor plan. And usually now there are computer programs. I remember when I started, we would create a floor plan on paper and do little cutouts (laughs) and put them. I've seen those down at Christie's many times. (laughs) Oh my gosh, paste them here and you kind of lay it out and then you move things around, you know, and then in addition to that, you're also thinking, well, if we're going to do a book or a catalog, you're working on that and you've got to identify writers. And so it's a really fun dynamic. There's lots of moving parts. It's like 3D chess, right? It sounds like so many different ways and angles. Exactly. Very well put. You enjoy it, obviously, because your smile could not be brighter right now. I do. I love working with artists. You know, they keep you on your toes. They push you out of your comfort zone, you know, and I love particularly artists that are just very collaborative in their process, you know, where you can have this great exchange about what the show will ultimately look like, Mm -hmm. you know, while always keeping their vision kind of front and center. You've talked throughout our conversation about being an advocate for people of color, but also this is something that you have done over the course of your career. I mean, I think about the ballet world. You know, the ballet world, I think about Misty Copeland as being this sort of person that everybody points to as, oh, look, look what Misty Copeland has achieved. But you were dancing much younger without anyone like that working in a principal role. So how did you being sort of the first of this time and time again, and even frankly in the art world as well, having such success, like what has that meant to you? And what do you do when you see young women who want to do what you're doing and you see yourself as the person who's kind of leading the charge? I mean, how does that feel at this point in your career? You know, it's such an interesting question. I think in dance, um, I had fewer role models. Mm-hmm. I will definitely say that. So it was, I think, as a young Black dancer in really a predominantly white world, it was very challenging. Yeah. And that goes back to the beginning of our conversation, Lydia, where I now as an adult look back and I think of certain instances, you know, where, you know, as a young dancer, decisions are often made for you in terms of what somebody else deems appropriate or deems to be the right role or what kind of dancer you are, right? right? That's generally not something that you actually got to decide. And now that I look back on that, I think, wow, you know, for a young person to kind of have to sort of face some of those challenges and race 
definitely came up. I think my parents were quite protective of me at certain points as a young dancer. I feel in a way quite proud of myself because it took definitely a lot of resilience and fortitude. Yeah. And then in the art world, you know, I'm first and foremost standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. And I think it's really, really important, you know, to acknowledge some of the incredible people that have come before me and really pave the path that I'm walking on. So people like Thelma Golden, yeah. who is such a force, yeah, um, Deborah Willis, mm -hmm. you know, who's a photographer. She's a chair of the photo department at NYU. I mentioned earlier, Carrie Mae Weems, Oakwean Wazor, who's no longer with us, was a prolific curator, you know, and one of the real big champions of contemporary African art, huge mentor for me. And then I had a couple of really great professors. So I really always feel it's important to acknowledge that I had people that I looked up to and that were incredibly supportive and still are. We're in a moment where there are a lot of Black curators, Black artists, women curators, even now more women museum directors and in the space out of which you come, Lydia, even more women leaders right. kind of in auction houses. Yeah. And it's a moment. I'm not going to pat ourselves on the back too much right. because I feel like there's always more work to be done, but I think it is a moment that's worth acknowledging. So in a way, yeah, you know, we all pay our dues in a way, but my belief is, and I definitely feel like I have paid my dues and maybe I have more to pay, I have no idea, but my belief is that I pay uh, dues and I add stones to that path that I'm walking down yeah. so that younger people, so that, and I know you have kids as well, my daughter, right, who's almost 13, doesn't have to pay those same dues, yeah. right? I don't want to kind of buy into this idea that we all have to toil and struggle to sort of get, there will always be challenges for every generation. Yeah. I don't want my challenges, hopefully, to be the exact same challenges that my daughter, right, and younger artists will also have to face. Yeah. That's a little bit kind of incremental progress, yeah. right? So it's really exciting to look and see some of the young people gallerists, artists, leaders, you know, that are also coming up and maybe coming up faster than you and I did. And that's a wonderful thing. Right. I always wink at them and say, this is great. So when my daughter wants an internship, I hope you'll hire her <laughs> right away. Make it easier. has got kids too. So if they not, please open the door. But yeah, the role model piece, the mentoring piece, I think is super important. I just feel really lucky. And so I'm in a moment right now where it's super important to me to think about the future, right? As much as I want to kind of stay present, what does the future look like? What does the museum of the future look like? What does it mean to lead for the future? Mm -hmm. What might art look like in the future? And then the other piece is really paying it forward, yeah. paying it forward where I can, you know? And that's really important to me. I agree. Really, really important. I completely agree. And I, I've always said that I feel like the first 21 years of your life in many ways are inbound, right? You're learning, right? And then somewhere Very well sort put. of 20s to 40s, you're growing, you're experiencing. And then there's something about hitting 40. To me, that's when I wrote my first book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. It really came out my last year of my 30s. And it felt very much to me like, this is what I've learned. I don't know if this is going to help you or not, but this exactly. is what I kind of wish someone had told me along the way. Yes. And now yep. I feel like that's what life is moving forward for me. It's these yep. lessons I've learned, passing them back, take it or leave it. I say what I say. Exactly. But again, and I think that's also on this podcast why I've really enjoyed meeting so many women because a lot of people have had different experiences along the course of their life that have brought them to where they are, some good, some bad. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when you think about your daughter, who's 13, 
What are you doing with her to make sure that she has the confidence that you have? Are there any tips you can give moms out there who are listening right now? Oh, that's so interesting. I think speaking of confidence, and you and I touched on this, you know, in the in the beginning when we were talking, you know, it is a journey mm. and it's an ongoing process. I feel much more confident today than say I was when I was in my 20s, yes. where I probably worried way too much about 99% of the things that never happened. <laughs> or mattered, you know. honestly. <laughs> exactly, or mattered. But that's part of the process, yeah. right? So I definitely feel comfortable in my own skin. I feel confident in my abilities. I try to be humble. I think humility is important because it allows you to kind of be a little raw and open and learn, Mm -hmm. right? That really is a kind of ongoing process. One of the things that's important to me that I tell my daughter and even just other young people is that while I may feel very confident, a lot of the time I still stumble. Yes. I still have moments of insecurity. I still look on Instagram and I have hashtag FOMO, you know? (laughs) Why wasn't I invited? You know, that, wow, I should have, those are all the people that I know. Or, gosh, you know, I kind of said that in that meeting, but maybe that wasn't great. I second guess myself sometimes. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I'm human. And so one of the things that I tell my daughter is, you know, life is a journey. And you're going to have moments where you feel really strong and you can stand on top of the world. And that's great. She told me very early on, you know, when I'm always sort of thinking about this, she'll say, Mama, you got to stay in the now. (laughs) I never forget this like eight-year-old looking at me and saying, stay in the now. And it just stopped me dead in my tracks. (laughs) Thank you, Mel Robbins. (laughs) I know. I was just sort of like, wow, this is like, that's incredibly wise. So I think you know, really cherishing and being present in those moments where you do feel strong and confident, but also going easy and being tender with yourself when you feel unsure. Mm. You know, I mean, for her age, there's a lot of friends stuff going on. You know, you're really, the academics are wrapping, you know, kind of ramping up. up. And it's okay to be unsure. And it's okay to question, you know. And in those moments, what I tell her is to always go back to her center, Mm. you know. And her center is that she's strong, she's smart, she's beautiful. Um, We talk a lot about black girl magic. Mm. Um, And then also not to be afraid to ask for help or to share her fears or her sort of unsteadiness with me, um, you know, with her dad, with her friends, um, with her grandmother. It's really important, I think, to gather your inner circle. And I, I can see you nodding, Lydia, well, because, because I have an women. article that you, I actually, <laughs> I pulled this quote out because you know that I have oh. like a hashtag net, network or die because I believe in nothing more than networking or dying. But I also think that the community is so incredible. And you'd written this in an article. I have my inner circle or network, which is for me essential. All women should have that inner circle of people they trust who don't judge them are good listeners and offer ways of resolving and moving forward even when it's hard advice to hear. And I loved everything about that entire paragraph, but it just felt so true to what you were saying right then. And I truly believe if that's the one lesson we teach to our daughters, that is it. It's not huge. Don't surround yourself with people who want to, they want to give air to the bad things in your life. Surround yourself with people who are there when things are bad and when things are good. Because I think sometimes 100%. it's almost harder when things are going yep. well to be supportive yep. and to be a good friend. But ultimately, those are the people who you should stay with forever because they're the real ones. They are the magic in your life. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. And as we said when we started, Lydia, none of us go it alone. No, not even close. None of us go it alone. 
So I embrace it. And the other thing I would say, Lydia, is gratitude is huge. Mm -hmm. And anybody who knows me knows that I talk a lot about gratitude, particularly given, you know, what we as human beings have all kind of gone through in these last few years, Mm -hmm. not even just in the U.S., but around the world. You know, we came through a pandemic. We came through yet another period of racial reckoning, LGBTQIA+. It has been intense. And what I say sometimes when people say, well, how do you, you know, why are you so happy or what, you know, and I'm not always happy, but I say, you know what? We're still here. Yeah. And we're trying. After all of that, we're still here. So I really try to have gratitude. I think it can be transformational. Mm. It doesn't mean that I don't throw myself a little pity party here and there, that my concerns don't matter. But at the end of the day, I'm still here. And I feel so blessed and so thankful for that. And from that space, it's just important to reach out and take temperature checks with others. Lydia, how are you doing? Are you okay? That's really, really important. So that's the other piece I I also kind of share a lot with my daughter is just having gratitude. Yeah. I was being interviewed on a podcast with a young woman this week, and she said to me, we were talking about my chapter, which is called The Power of Positivity. And she said, what are your thoughts on toxic positivity? Which, of course, is a word that the Gen Zs use a lot about people who are trying to force positivity. And I said, you know, I fully understand that that can be one way of looking at it. But I often think that we forget one of the most important parts about being a positive person is what it is like for other people. You know, if you're ever at Starbucks and you see how many people sort of shoot dirty looks at the barista who's working overtime to try to get them a coffee at eight o'clock in the morning, barely look up from their phone as they grab it and walk out, or the number of sharp things that you see people say to other people, and then you see them internalize it, and then that passes along to the next person. Exactly. You know, so I always say, it's like, look around, look up, make eye contact, thank somebody, and watch how your interaction changes the day of their next interaction. And probably- Has a rippling effect. It is. It's like a pebble in a pond. It can go either way. Exactly. You know, that negativity can go just as far. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's really true. And I think, um, I actually, to be honest with you, I haven't heard the term toxic positivity. I think I know what it means from a certain perspective, but- I think to your point, there's a ripple effect, you know, first of all, people aren't positive all the time. And it doesn't mean that when you're positive, you're not also aware of the challenges, right, that you face, that others face, that exist in the world. You know what it comes down to, Lydia, it comes down to joy. And joy for me, along with rest in this moment Mm -hmm. and respite is a form of resistance and it's a form of power. I love it. And I will leave my thoughts with you by saying, One of the biggest things for me that I tell people, and especially young people, is never let someone take your joy. When you have your joy, right, and it can be for a moment, it can be for a day, it can be for an extended period, it is so powerful and transformative for you, but other people in your space feel that energy. It is such a powerful, powerful thing. Absolutely. And I think that it can coexist with many other emotions, but I really try very hard to kind of hold that at my core. Yeah. Well, Isolde, this has been such a joyful interview for me. I've really enjoyed (laughs) spending this time with you and hearing your story and hearing about your confidence journey over the course of your life and your incredible career. Where can we find you? Where do we follow? What's coming next? Tell us everything. 
Oh, I'll tell you. I'm so excited. I mean, I'm on Instagram, Isolda underscore Brillmeyer. That's my handle. As I mentioned, at the New Museum as Deputy Director, and I am going to plug our upcoming show, Speaking of Confidence and Fierce Women, on March 2nd, we open the exhibition Wageshi Mutu, Intertwined. And Wageshi is just an extraordinary artist. She's based both here in New York and in Nairobi, where she's from originally has studios in both cities. And this is one of the first times an artist has taken over the entire museum. Her work is just phenomenal. It's extraordinary. It's about power and history and women and and everything, painting, sculpture, film. So I'm really, really excited. And I think it's going to be a real uh, crowd pleaser because I think there's something for everybody. So very excited there. And otherwise, you know, I'm just sort of out and about. I try to see as much art as I can. Find you at every museum in New York. Yes, exactly. I mean, I really try to get out and support as many artists and creatives as I possibly can. So it's been such a joy to speak with you, Lydia. You too. And I want to thank you again for being here today. And I want to also thank Rockefeller Center and Joe, my amazing producer, who makes all of this happen. And to Tishman Spire, who has this beautiful property at One Rock Center where we do all of our podcasting. I would just like to leave our guests with one quick thought. What do you do in your life to live a more joyful life? And if you're not feeling that, what can you do? Why don't you shoot us both a DM, put it into our Instagram feeds. We would love to know when this episode hits. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence at Newsstand Studios. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you so much.